0: So, Bibles, James chapter one. I'd invite you to turn there with us. While you're turning there, I'll give you a little bit of my problem. Actually, you don't have time for my problems, but uh, yesterday I had the opportunity. I have a, one of my dearest friends in the world is here uh, visiting with us for the weekend, and so um, Lauren decided to drive down. Her husband had some homework to do, and so Lauren got Declan. That's our grandson who's three months old, roughly. And they drove down, and so we were at lunch yesterday, and uh, I encountered a problem that I'm gonna do all I can to avoid having in the future. And that is, I get left in charge of the grandbaby. Um, Lauren and Theresa went up to deal with their order and left me with Declan, who all of a sudden decided he was not happy. And I'm trying to cram a bottle in his throat because that's what I understood you're supposed to do, and he's having none of it. And I'm looking around for Teresa or for Lauren, and my friend Jim is just watching me try to figure out how to make do. Don't you wish that was the worst kind of problem that any of us had this week? uh, I've been walking with James for a while, In this first chapter, and we've been walking with James together for a while in this first chapter, and we see that James has a particular point of reference for us about handling the trials of our lives. I make light of the one that I had because in the overall scheme of things, that grandson of mine was going to be okay because his mama wasn't too far away. But some of the troubles that we face and some of the trials that we face... Uh, have a way of stretching us beyond us. I would say it this way. There is the possibility that we can get into trouble and trials in our lives that are so intense and take us so far beyond us that effectively it puts God on the hot seat. I know that it's a little hard sometimes to talk about these things because we have these religious veneers on our lives and we know good answers. It's not that we're wrong in those. It's not that we're uh, not really honest in those. It's just that sometimes I I think that our right answers kind of get in the way of us being really honest. So sometimes these... Lessons are better seen other places, including in literature. So I take you to the story that uh, was written by David um, Gunnerson, I believe is the name, and uh, Snow Falling on Cedars is the novel. And in this particular story, it, it has this encounter between one of the main characters. His name is Ishmael Chambers and his mother. Ishmael was one of the guys who, according to the story, fought in the... Um, Pacific theater during World War II and specifically in the taking of Tarawa, one of the horrible battles between the allies and the Japanese forces and lots of loss and horrific scenes there from that historical battle. And in this story, Ishmael has lost one of his arms in that battle, but worse than that, he's lost his joy for living partially because his childhood love, a Japanese-American girl named Hatsui, had been taken away from him. And his life just was kind of not worth living. And we all have those people in our lives. We don't always know that they're in our lives. We don't always see them, but they are there. They tend to be there at least. And in this particular story, he's struggling through life, and he's trying to make sense of it. He's trying to find reason to move on. And so Ishmael has this conversation with his mom, and he says these words, I'm unhappy. Tell me, what do I do? What, what do I do with my life that means nothing? And his mother gives good counsel, which is, well, you need to take it to the Lord. You need to find God in this trial. His response in that story, I think, captures some of the spirit of our day because he said these words, there were guys who prayed on Tarawa and they died. And there were guys who didn't pray on Tarawa and they died. It really didn't seem to make any difference. Now my submission to you is that that is the cry of American society in our day. We have something of a tip of the hat to organize religion, although that seems to be moving quickly to the side in our society. Uh, I was mentioning Wednesday night with our Bible study group how intrigued I was with the response of the American media to the Pope in his visit here. Uh, for an American society that ha- seems to have very little use for religion, all of a sudden when the Pope got here, it was, oh, let's roll out and everything's great, let's talk about them all the time, until he started talking about things they didn't want to hear. That is the spirit of our day, I think. This lack of interest in God and what he has to say. And the problem that that, uh, many problems, but one of the problems that sets up for us is that when we get to that point in life when our problems are beyond us, where do you go if God's not there? James speaks into that. Actually, we find a turn in his text here because in this first part of this first chapter. It's an overview. It's an introduction to everything else that comes. And in that, he's giving us this push about how to handle trials in our life. But in the process of that, he's also uncovering some themes that will come up later in his letter. But at this point, he makes this turn. He he moves from focusing on those who are going through troubles in life and their And they're intent on hanging on. That's verse 2. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And so he focuses in. You're going through these trials. Hang in there. Because as you hang in there, you find life in God there. That's the last several weeks. But with this today, he makes this turn. And he's no longer talking as if those people are hanging on. Now he's like he's talking to those people who are just ready to give up. So before I go any further, let me not assume that everything's great with you today. It may be. I hope it is. I hope that all you have in your life today is flowers and pretty things. But we all know that that's not really the norm in life. So what does James have to say? He challenges us first on some, as I mentioned last week, some stinking thinking. That we have. We'll talk about that and then he gives us some corrections for those. Here's the deal Did you watch the news this week and see that we as Americans have another university mass murder that's occurred? Whose fault is that? The answer to that probably depends on which TV channel you watch. Or how you approach those things. I'm intrigued with us as a society on how bent we are on fixing blame for stuff. You don't have to watch much TV to find ads from lawyers who are happy to say, I will make sure that you get satisfaction from those people who are to blame for your unhappiness. It is... The the way of the world. Whose fault is that, those lights? (laughs) We have a fascination with assigning blame. James speaks into that. Let me just jump into the text here. We're in verse... Uh, 12 I'll start in verse 12. We're actually going to be looking into verse 13 and following. He, he addresses this thinking that we have where we fixate on assigning blame, and he pulls it into this discussion about trials and the things that we have going on there. Blessed is the man, verse 12, Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. And now our text for the day. Let no one say when he is tempted... I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. Now, I'm going to stop there. I'll continue reading in just a little bit, but let's, let's go here first. James speaks into this, and he identifies the stinking thinking that we bring into our approach to trials, and he captures the spirit of that first century group of people who believed in that Greco-Roman world and their whole mythologies and all of those gods, that's a small g, you remember, all of those and, and these gods who would toy with humans and their perspective in that first century was if things went your way, it's just simply because good fortune smiled on you. By the way, good fortune was embodied in one of those gods in the Roman pantheon called Fortuna. And so if everything's going great, it's just because you've been singled out by the gods, by the deities. You know that's mythology, right? I, you know, I was probably in church. I need to make sure everybody knows that I don't believe that. That's just what they believed. And so that first century church was dealing with a society that believed that, but the other side of that was if things weren't going for, so well for you, it's because the gods were out to get you. And so with this... James speaks into that in this idea that says, I'm going through trouble. I don't like what's going on with me. It's hard. Matter of fact, it's pushing me beyond myself. And so the natural progression for them in that prevailing um, mythological mindset was, well, God must be behind it. That's one thing when you're theoretically talking about a pantheon. It's another thing when you're talking about the living God And James essentially says we'll have none of it. You can't put that on God. We'll talk about that in just a second. But here's the basic idea behind it. If God is in fact all-powerful, let me stop there. Do you believe God is all-powerful? Now, we have those big theological words, those $4 seminary words. Omnipotent means all-powerful. And if God is all-powerful, The way we tend to pull that into our vernacular or the way we talk every day is, well, I hear this a lot. God is in control. Now, I struggle with the in control part of that. I've had those discussions from up here before. I prefer to refer to it as God is in charge because if God is in control and God is just absolutely every little piece of life, he's pulling the strings and making this happen, then how do you explain evil other than God is the one who does it? And we know that's not true. Well, we had not gotten to that part of the text yet, but it's here. But the idea is, if God is omnipotent, all-powerful, how far away are we from saying all these problems that I have that I can't do anything about, God ultimately is responsible for those? You see, I, I really think that, that we're not that far away from where this first century group was. We hear a lot of this in our daily life. How how could God let that happen? I hear that a lot. I I might even think that a lot. We look at shootings on campuses and beheadings of Christians in other parts of the world and it puts us into this dilemma. How, How do we explain those things? What do we do with those things? And where's God in them? James begins by saying... You just can't go there. But he takes it a step further and he gives us why. Here's the correction, the first of two. Let's keep reading now. Let no one, verse 13 again, let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. And then desire, when, he has, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Now, it almost sounds like he's kind of moving uh, kind of between some things. But all of this comes together, I think, for us in this particular way. I'm going to give you this one statement. I hope that you can hang on to it. The bedrock on which your life foundation is built is the character of God. The bedrock on which you build your life has to be based on the character of God, not the perception of God that other people have, not your experience with God, but on the character of God. That's where James digs in for us here. Second part of verse 13, he gives us these two statements. God cannot be tempted by evil, and secondly, because of that, he doesn't tempt people to evil. What does the word tempt mean? See, James pulls a little bit of a sneaky on us here because he uses the same word here that he's used back in verse 2. I already read verse 2 today, count it all joy when you run into these trials. Trials there and temptations that we find here in verse 13 is the exact same word, it's just used in two different ways. Now, we get the word tempt. It means to entice to get somebody to make a decision that they might not make otherwise. Do you like commercials on TV? Now, I don't mind telling you, if I'm going to sit down and watch TV and a commercial comes on, I'm going to find something else to do during that time. We go to my dad's house, he just puts it on mute, and we don't even listen to it. I, I get up and do something else, I'll change the channels. I don't, do, I don't like listening to it on the radio if you're a salesperson. God love you, I appreciate you, I pray for you, but I don't like commercials. (laughs) But that's kind of the word here. That temptation that he's talking about in verse 13. God doesn't commercial you. He doesn't try to lead you into doing something or buying something that you're not in the market for. particularly, this is tied towards evil. Don't miss this. He's emphasizing the character of God. If the prevailing attitude is, I get to these situations, they're bigger than me, God's all-powerful, therefore God must be responsible. In other words, the reason my faith is falling here is God's fault. James says that's not even possible for God. It's not in him. I'll say it this way. God will never put you in a situation to make sure that you fall. God will never put you in a position expecting you to fail. You see what I said? The foundation of your life has to be built on the character of God. If you can't trust that truth then you just fall right back into first century Roman mythology and the gods are playing games with you. The reality is there are no gods. There is one God, and James says the character of God is you can count on him not playing games with you. So whatever else that means, it has to come to play for us as we address those problems in our lives, especially the ones that are bigger than we are. Those health things, you go to the doctor and the doctor gives you a diagnosis that is way beyond you and maybe even way beyond the doctor. What do you do with that? Whatever else you do with it, James would say, you can count on God being good with you about that. Here's why I get that. Look at verses 16 through 18. I know that I'm jumping a verse here. But in verses 16 through 18, James supports what he's saying with a couple of examples. Do not be deceived, okay? Remember, we just got through talking about the temptation, the solicitation to evil, that attempt to make you do something you don't want to do. And so now he picks up on that. Don't be deceived. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there's no variation or shadow due to change. I'll stop there for a second. Let's try that on for size. What James is saying now is, I've already told you the character of God says he's not going to do this to you, and now I appeal to what we know about God. On Wednesday nights, we're working through, uh, at least some, some of us, uh, we've got a lot of stuff going on, on campus on Wednesday nights, great thing to see all the activity and all that stuff. Uh, in adult Bible study, we're working through the early chapters of the book of Genesis, And in those early chapters of the book of Genesis, we find this account where God creates everything. Y'all remember those first couple of chapters? And we find this repetitive thing, and God created such and such, and his response to that was, well, that's okay, it's fair work, it's mediocre. God never said it was mediocre. Everything that he did when he finished creating on every step... Well, except man, that's a whole nother deal. But every step, he said, I looked at it, and it's good. God doesn't do mediocre. You with me with that? See, that's an important statement if you're the one going through trouble and you're counting on his character to get you through. So he creates and he says, that's good. He gets the man, he says, that's good. But then he says, but we can still do better. And so, that's right, that's right, Barbara's on it, right? And so when he finishes, then he says, that's awesome. And so James ties to that, the Father of Lights, this reference back to creation, to the created order, and all of its splendor, and all of its complexity, and all of its glory, and all of that just reflects right back on him father of lights, that same one, James says, is the one on whose character you can count when you're going through trials. And so when it's bigger than you, and it's bigger than medicine, and it's bigger than a counselor, and it's bigger than a financial advisor, and whatever your problem that just puts God on the hot seat, James would say to you, God's okay with that. He's not going to put you in a position to see you fail. And you can count on that. So the correction continues then, verse 18. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. In other words, he says on every front and every way, the work that God does is good. So he's not going to do bad with you in your trials. Now, you're with me on that? Okay, that's kind of the big deal. I want you to hang on to it. And I want to add one other step. There's another correction that he gives here. Because the correction there is if we want to play the blame game and we feel like ultimately God's the one in charge, James says it can't be. His character says that cannot be the case. This is how it is. And so this is all we find in there. And so if that's true, then the question is, okay, so who is to blame for the big problems I have? You ready for the good news? It's your fault. Well, so that's sort of true. Who gets to blame for this? Verses fourteen and fifteen. Almost finished, hang with me. He says, But each person is tempted that's that solicitation to evil. Each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Whose desire? It is your fault. I say that in love. I'm not trying to make you feel bad on bringing to church and beat you up or anything like that. But the reality is you never get to the help that only God can offer until you get past your own responsibility. When you realize this is my responsibility, I'm the one who makes decisions that causes my faith to fall and fail. When I understand that about me, it pushes me, it thrusts me. Into the hand of God, who's always good. Interesting wording here, if I understand it right. We're just a handful of weeks now from deer season. Yes. Yes. Yesterday, well, for bow hunters, I guess. Right? Is that right? Okay. Or spotlighters, whichever you happen to be. Um, So let me let me give you the biblical version of deer hunting season coming up. All right. Because if I understand it right, uh, many of you have already well into the process of, you know, getting your stands ready and setting up feeders and putting corn out and all that kind of stuff, right? Okay, thanks. Make sure you're there. All right, so um, the, the biblical word for that is luring and enticing deer. The goal... Actually, I remember when I first started deer hunting a long, long time ago. Uh, we were in West Texas, and we would just go out and sit down in the pasture somewhere and hope a deer would come by. You know how many deer I shot that way? You know how many deer I saw that way? Didn't happen. So then started hanging around with guys that know how to hunt, and they, you know, they're always filling their freezer with meat because they lure and they entice deer. So you go out and you put corn out. Set your stand where you can see where they're going to be eaten. Put your cameras up so you can see which one you're going to shoot. And it becomes very scientific. Okay with that, I'm not, I'm not, I don't have an issue with it. It just is scientific. Which is exactly how sin works with us. According to James, verse 14, But each is tempted when he is lured enticed by his own desire. The picture here is of, it's a violent picture. It's its a, an animal that is cornered and grabbed and dragged away against its will. The second one, the entice word there is really kind of a fishing term. We got some fishermen in our church. One guy was telling me not, not long, he's a bass fisherman deluxe, and talking about how he was going and fishing off, you know, Grassy banks and that kind of stuff And catching big old bass You know you you don't just get fish To jump into your boat You gotta entice them Those are the word pictures That are being used here And in that we have this life cycle Of failing faith That James gives us According to our own desire He says we are enticed And lured away And then the next step Verse uh, 15 then desire when it has conceived give birth to sin and sin when it is fully grown gives forth or brings forth death and so the picture that James gives us is as we encounter these situations in life that are bigger than us and we want to blame God for them which is another way of saying my faith doesn't work James says we lead ourselves down that path we ignore God's character We depend on ourselves, and we fall. So throughout this, we've been saying, as you run into those tests in life, the first thing to do is to say, this is a test. And as you get to that test, recognize that the test is bigger than just the health problem or the finance problem or whatever it is. The test is really about your faith and where your faith is going to be. So this is a test. The question then is, okay, so where's God in this? James is saying to us, God's never going to be the cause of the problem. He will always be the solution of the problem. Just trust him. He's good for it. And don't trust yourself because it really is your fault if your faith falls. Now, I, don't, I know that sounds a little bit harsh. But James is essentially saying you don't have to fall. The genius of blaming God, which is what our society likes to do, is that it removes us from responsibility. But the killer part of it is that it doesn't work. You can't blame God and get away with it. My question to you, I think, then, is this What do you do with this? In your life, why don't you just get you to bow your heads, if you will? Let's bring this part of the service to a close. In your life right now, what are the trials that you're facing that, unless something changes, could easily move you down the path to deny God? What's going on in your life? that threatens the character of God in your mind. Where's God in that? Let me move it off of you because it may very well be that you're here today and things are going well and it's really not that you don't have a crisis today. You have people in your life who do. I've been been encouraged at some of the conversations I've heard from our church folks over the last number of weeks who are hearing what God is saying about these trials through James and being able to step into the lives of hurting people around them. That, that's where it's at. So how about those people around you? Are they on the verge of denying God because their problem is so big that they think God has to be in charge of it and causing it? And what do you do with that? The short answer is, if you don't have Jesus Christ in your life, that trial needs to push you to him. And if you don't know who he is or how to get him in on your life, then we would love to have that conversation with you today before you leave. Father, we ask you to take this time as we move into a time of reflection, as we do some more worship through song, I pray that you would give us that clarity of thought that helps us to understand that we're always just about a half a step away from denying you with the way we handle life. And so help us to get it right. Remind us of how good you are. Remind us of your love. Remind us of the high... Cost that was paid on that cross so that we could have life. And then change our life today. We pray these things in Jesus' name.